Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in. Today we're going to be talking about a book that is just hot off the presses. It's called All Electric America, A Climate Solution and the Hopeful Future. We have one of the co-authors on with us today, Leah Parks. Um, Leah is a writer and associate editor for electricitypolicy.com and Electricity Daily. Um, She holds a master's of science degree from Stanford in civil and environmental engineering and a BA from the University of Wisconsin, go Badgers, um, in international relations. And her co-author is David Freeman. Um, He has quite a long resume and quite a bit of expertise in this industry. He was one of the architects of the EPA during the Nixon administration and then later served as the chairman of the Tennessee Valley Authority and then subsequently as CEO of some of the biggest public utilities like the Lower Colorado River Authority, New York Power Authority, the Los Angeles Department of Power and Water, and Sacramento Municipal Utility District. We know it here in California as SMUD. And so their book is quite credible, to say the least. And I am so excited to have Leah on to talk with us about it. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Leah. So glad to have you on the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, congrats on your new book. Um, you and your co-author, David Freeman, are advocating for the complete elimination of fossil fuel energy use. And for the everyday American, that might sound like you're advocating for a big step backward in the way we live, maybe a diminishing of our standard of living. Talk to us about how renewable energy could meet both our current and our future demand for energy. Yeah, it's actually a step forward. This is progress. This is us moving from taking uh, um, creatures from the ground that that have fossilized or turned to oil and burning it to actually utilizing uh, renewable energy, our our solar energy, which has uh, an amazing amount of energy and our wind as well. So at first blush, people might feel overwhelmed by the task or not seem as possible, but research has actually shown we can do it. And solar and wind technologies are now mature technologies. We have enough untapped solar and wind energy to power all of our energy needs many times over. In fact, we are busily installing these technologies right now and using them right now. 99% of our new electricity generation capacity added in the United States in the first quarter of 2016 came from renewable energy sources. 64% of that was from solar. So we have the technology also to use that electricity uh, without burning fossil fuels. We have... um, electric vehicles and electric trains. We have heat pumps to heat our homes and our buildings, and we have energy storage technologies and digital technology now that make it possible for renewables to provide all of the energy we need for 24 hours a day. Wow, that's exciting because a lot of times when you hear um, representatives from you know the oil and gas industry talk about advocates for renewable energy, they act like well they all want us to go back to living in caves and we'll you know we won't be able to use you know electricity the way that we 
we want to in order to have a great standard of living. So that's pretty hopeful to think about being able to provide for all the energy that we want, um, you know, and that we need through renewable energy. But, you know, every time the price of oil goes down, there's always somebody ready to declare another nail in solar's coffin. But talk to us about the cost structures for fossil fuels and renewable energy and why the cost of renewables could actually be cheaper. Well, renewable energy are technologies, and they're not fuels. And their prices will continue to plummet with advancement, whereas the fossil fuel industry prices are expected to increase over time. As um, where fuel prices continually increase, they can often be more difficult to extract, like the tar sands or what have you, as as we diminish supplies or as we search for them, because we have to search for these supplies as well. So uh, even if we see um, some fluctuations month over month or year over year where prices will come or down, we expect the fossil fuel prices will continue to climb. But now that we've moved into the digital age, we're seeing something called exponential growth technologies or exponential growth businesses. And, and in the past, our technology grew in, in a more linear fashion, but what's happening with solar and wind technologies is they've been experiencing something akin to this exponential growth, and it's been taking people by surprise. It's kind of the same thing we saw with Kodak film camera, Kodak being surpassed by um, Kodak and their film cameras being surpassed by digital cameras or Blockbuster mm-hmm. and uh, our taped movies uh, being taken over by online videos. The same tra- trajectory um, is expected with um, energy storage or electric vehicles as well. These are also electric vehicles are essentially large computers on re- wheels, and we'll be ex- seeing exponential growth of these technologies as well. So. What's amazing is how fast prices have plummeted in, of, of solar energy, for instance. In Texas and California, new utility-scale solar projects are beating out new natural gas and coal projects. They're bidding at 3 and a half to $0.04 cents per kilowatt hour, which was unheard of and absolutely unexpected. Wind is now at $0.02 cent, two and a half cents per kilowatt hour, and, and that's coming under the 5 um, to 14 cents of natural gas or 9 to 14 cents of new coal projects or 14 plus cents for uh, nuclear energy. And so this is what we're seeing is these plummeting prices and that's going to make it cheaper and cheaper for us in the future. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the arguments that I've heard about, you know, setting goals to convert our entire ele- electricity grid to renewables um, and some of the folks that are against that is that they're so much more land intensive than, say, a coal or a natural gas plant that can generate comparable wattage. Talk to us about where we could build utility-scale wind and solar farms without the usual problems associated with zoning, you know, these large wind and solar farms, the nimbyism. And I'd also like for you to explain a point that you made in the book that I thought was really interesting, comparing land use for solar and land use for coal. Right. So we have the space. Uh, Good estimates from studies are that we need about 0.42% of the United States land with a good energy mix of wind and solar technology, some other renewables. Um, And and that's about about one-eighth of an acre needed per person for all of our energy needs. And if you compare that to the fact that we need about one acre per person for our food, you see it's not... It's not that much. And if, 
If we include spacing for wind turbines, it will need about 1.6% of the U.S. land, and the area between the turbines can be used for grazing uh, or growing crops. Uh, Elon Musk presented analysis, and he said that he found that for, with solar energy, uh, it would require something a small corner, like a small corner of Utah in the U.S. to power all of our energy needs, or for the world, it would be the size of Spain would be needed. Um, the, the other thing is, is that we have um, our rooftops as well. The Department of Energy found that 40% of the U.S. electricity today could come from rooftop solar, uh, including canopies or other places in the built environment. So, so because the so little land is actually needed, we actually have a lot of flexibility in where we can site these projects. We can put them in our, in our um, southwest deserts, and there's a lot of the Department of Energy has determined that we can find more than enough developable land throughout the continent and on our coastlines that won't disturb pristine lands. I mean, we we obviously, you know, we need, and then we also have the Great Plains. I mean, basically, the our solar gold mines are deserts, and the Great Plains are the Saudi Arabia of wind, is kind of what Dave and I like to say, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and we have we have 18 times the photovoltaic capacity alone in the Southwest to power all of our energy needs, and that's based on the Department of Energy's amount of solar PV capacity that we have. So we need to work with the NIMBY issues, and we need to be careful in how we site these projects. But we have huge expanses of land, and we found we have enough. Now, uh, if you compare that um, to fossil fuels or to coal. Uh, we, you see, solar installations don't scar or contaminate the land that they're on as coal mining, coal mining does uh, or oil drilling or fracking does. Mm-hmm. So um, the, basically, if you, if, you, if you have coal-fired power plants, you need to strip mine your coal, and you have to strip more and more land every year, and it wrenches trees from the ground and devours topsoil, bruises freshwater springs, and you have... Uh, coal mines kill coal. <laughs> we have coal mining kills coal miners, and we have coal spills like we recently had with uh, uh, Duke Energy's in the Dan River, and it costs a lot of money. And uh, eventually, taxpayers and ratepayers often pay the price or a big price of it. Mm-hmm. And my father was a coal miner, and the dangers involved in, and it was not a strip mine, it was an underground, way underground mine, the dangers involved with that, the, the physical ailments both to the body and the lungs, um, is something that a lot of people don't realize the price that those workers pay in order to keep the lights on, and those, uh, you know, uh, worker conditions just simply aren't the same when you're talking about solar and wind. But, you know, one of the concerns that I have about citing these utility-scale solar and wind farms in remote or rural areas is that they're so far away from where the energy will be consumed in our more urban areas. And we know that, you know, the longer the transmission lines are, the more energy is, is lost. What can we do to reduce transmission loss so that we don't end up investing in oversized renewable energy generation facilities? This is actually a really good question, and it brings up the important point about how we want our 21st century energy infrastructure to look like and the type of jobs that will become available as a result of what planning we make. I mean, we could, as we discussed, as you're saying, 
power all of our energy needs, let's say just from solar energy in a giant redox low battery, you know, a huge battery or something, Mm -hmm. uh, and we could put that in a corner of Utah and then have huge transmission lines and send it to the rest of the United States. Uh, That's possible. And and there's arguments that, well, that's really cheap. You could just put it all there. But obviously, um, in developing our infrastructure, we want to consider energy security. We want to consider redundancy. We also want to consider environmental justice and the Mm -hmm. democratization of energy. And and that's something that um, involves our desire to produce our own energy in our homes and in our communities and the ability for society to bring jobs to the area. And and you had a really uh, wonderful interview with uh, Shalini Kataya, the director yes. of Catching the Sun, and they mm-hmm. explore that in detail, and I love the movie too, mm-hmm. and I loved your, your interview. And it explores this topic, and it's really important. So we have to think about um, our, how... What, what happens is, is that when, as we develop this infrastructure, if we're really smart about it and we env- embrace progress and we're excited about this new technology and we think, wow, this is American, as American we can be, and let's you know, harness entrepreneurship and think about what do we want it to look like? Well, we may want it to start from the home where each home can be its own little microgrid and then inside you know, where we have solar panels on a roof and we have our own electric vehicles that could, their batteries could act as a backup for our car and we have a smart system and then our home right. is connected to our neighborhoods and then to our maybe our, our, our cities and we create these microgrids. Our neighborhood could be a microgrid. Our city can be a microgrid. So we can have it all all inside this, and then our states can be a microgrid also from the right. rest of the country, and then our regions. And we create this redundancy and this amazing, um, beautiful uh, new energy system, and it will create mm-hmm. a lot of local jobs and spur entrepreneurship. It, it can be really wonderful. So, yeah, it's very it's exciting. Really important and, topic. And, and very hopeful. Um, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We have so much more to discuss with Leah, so don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. In case you're just joining us, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Leah Parks. She's the co-author of a brand new book called All Electric America, A Climate Solution and the Hopeful Future. She co-wrote the book um, with David Freeman, and we're talking about how we can convert our electrical system to renewables. And Leah, you write in the book that we could build an electrical system fueled by renewables that would be capable of fueling all of our transportation, heat all our buildings, and fuel all of our industrial processes within 35 years. Talk to us about how that could be accomplished. Well, at the heart of the plan is is eliminating um, uh, the fossil fuels with a practical goal of steadily reducing them by 3% a year while building alternative greenhouse gas-free electricity generating capacity and, and also alternate and other technologies at a pace to meet our future 2050 energy, year 2050 energy needs. And we can orchestrate the use of solar, wind, geothermal, hydroelectric energy with storage systems and smart technology to provide reliable power day and night. And we already have all of the technology and tools, but these will keep improving. So many technologies are essential, like you said, uh, and, and we'll have the vastly improved, we have vastly improved heat pumps uh, for heating and cooling and and as well as uh, both electric and hydrogen fuel cell cars, trucks, and uh, electric trains. Airplanes could be powered with hydrogen. There's also look at solar hybrid airplanes and electric airplanes. But uh, and, and heat pumps and hydrogen can also be used to power our industry. And this, this ensemble of wind and solar energy and storage can be balanced, and the trio can, can do this beautifully. But this is well within our, our, need, our ability to do. It's 35 years, and we have done more difficult things than this in the past. This is something with innovation and work. We can, uh, we can implement it, and we can do this slowly. It's not that we need to do it in four short years like we did in World War II to win a war or to get mm-hmm. to the moon even. And how this is something that we can do over time, and we have the time to do it. Mm-hmm. And that's exciting. You know, I mean, I think that a lot of people look at a huge national infrastructure, you know, project as something so daunting. And, you know, we see all this political gridlock that's going on. But a lot of this could be accomplished through, you know, private companies and, and public-private partnerships. Um, you know, we don't have to wait for Congress to decide to do it. Some of this can be done even at the local level and begin the process of creating a distributed generation system locally even. You know, on on Go Green Radio, from time to time, we have guests on who talk about population issues and the impact that population will have on the planet. And I you know, I, I kind of see this related to what you're talking about, because depending on our nation's immigration policies and our birth rates in the coming decades, 
our energy demand may or may not remain steady. And so if we're going to set a goal of converting to 100% renewables, do we need to be concerned about a rise in population or can we increase energy efficiency to the point to the point where that um, you know population increases would be negligible in terms of energy consumption? Yeah, energy efficiency is definitely a very important part of this. Uh, it's we we have many resources for energy efficiency. You know, we have ordinary, and 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 indeed with this this renewable all electric system is inherently more efficient than our fossil fuel uh, and combustion based uh, you know infrastructure right now. But but we have. For our, the cons- we have ordinary consumer products that can help a lot, like lighting, refrigeration, air conditioning, heating of buildings with heat pumps, uh, LED lights are really important. And um, but but altogether, the all electric, all renewable energy supply is projected to be about 39 percent more efficient than the wow. present system. And the vast majority of this efficiency will be due to converting our system from running on fossil fuels to electricity. And the mm-hmm. remainder will be from efficiency in other efficiencies. Well, and we've seen even in the state of California how though the population has increased, the energy consumption hasn't necessarily increased because of increased efforts to um, incentivize efficiency. So we have some examples of a population increase not necessarily increasing energy demand to look to. You know, as we are speaking, you know, and some people may be listening to this weeks or months from now, but as we speak, the 2016 Summer Olympics are on, and everybody's loving the idea of friendly global competition, the kind that drives us to be better, faster, stronger. So, in the spirit of friendly, constructive competition, talk to us about what China is doing in the renewable energy space and what that means for America. Yeah, China is doing great work. They're, it's really exciting what they're doing. And um, there is definitely a clean tech race. And in some respects, you, the United States is, is trailing in it. Uh, China is, is leading in the development deployment um, development deployment and jobs of both wind and solar sectors. And China has plans to install one terawatt of greenhouse gas-free energy by the year 2050, and that's the entire United States electricity capacity. So so what they're doing is just amazing work. And in terms of new wind energy capacity, the Chinese company Goldwind is the largest wind company. Uh, Denmark, Vestas comes in second, if we're thinking of the Olympics, and U.S. Mm -hmm. Trails third as the largest the U.S. GE company GE trails as the as the third largest wind company in the world. They get the bronze. <laughs> they they get the bronze. So five of the ten largest wind companies are, are based of um, based on new deployment capacity in 2015 are from China. So if you look at the Chinese team, they're, they're really strong. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, and they're um, killing it. <laughs> yeah, and so and then although the U.S. is growing. Um, their their um, renewable energy infrastructure. We are trailing in the solar race, uh, solar sector as well. China produces 1.7 million jobs, uh, or produce 1.7 million jobs in 2015, due to be the due to being a leader in installation and manufacturing. So, wow. so there, China, um, and I know there's a China's just doing a lot of amazing work because they're working really hard and they're seeing this as 
as the future and their entrepreneurs are on it. And I think we have some trouble because we are looking at this as green and environmental or hippie and it's become so divisive. But we should really get on this too because um, this is the future and we want to, we, we attract so many great minds and so many wonderful engineers and people from all over the world and wonderful entrepreneurs. So I know the U.S. can do it too. Mm-hmm. So we should. We should. <laughs> now talk to us about energy storage because in your book, um, you talk about re- this, this marriage of renewables with energy storage as being critical. So talk to us about why energy storage is important. You know, talk to us about the cost. And, and furthermore, I'd really like for you to explain to our listeners what you wrote about in terms of the ramifications for individual families being able to power their homes with a combination of renewables and storage. Yeah, so definitely the answer to variable energy and making a really strong 21st century infrastructure is storage, and, and it will store the power for renewables and, um, um, and, and help make it really smooth, along with our digital technology. And it's important because storage can be used in, throughout the entire grid, and for many reasons, it's not just to store huge bulk, uh, bulks of energy, like with um, storage in our hydroelectric dams where we have big reservoirs. Uh, but, we, but we have new technology for that, too. So we will see bulk energy storage, but we're also going to see storage throughout the grid to also help with power quality, um, to help with grid quality, to mal- manage, manage and balance the system that mm-hmm. as the variable energy comes on, if a cloud goes over, you might have storage there just to kind of manage that fluctuation and keep it really smooth. So it's, it, and all of this will be managed with, it will be automated and controlled. And, and um, so it, it's really going to be a really great system with a lot of good redundancy. We didn't have all of this storage in the past. That was actually kind of, I would say, a problem with the 20th century grid. You know, we mm-hmm. had coal that we could have and extra coal or extra gas that we could store, but we had to produce that electricity as the demand required. And this allows so much more flexibility and management of it. Now, for the home, uh, this is important because it allows backup. It allows us to be our own mini-grids. And, and, and I think that many uh, utility CEOs and forethinking thinking folks in the utility industry see that as a benefit because now homes aren't going to be as aren't going to just be producing energy that they have to deal with. It'll be a lot more predictable. And mm-hmm. for us, if there's a weather um, a weather problem or a natural disaster or a power outage, we can have storage. So our our cars, for instance, our electric vehicles will be amazing sources of storage. They and and backup for our homes. Some point we can have home to vehicle systems and we can plug it in, and it can help us power our essential needs for a few days. So with the north the northeast in two thousand three, I believe had a big huge outage. Well, we wouldn't have the problems we had at that time. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, with Hurricane Sandy, I remember even seeing pictures of homes that still had the lights on and still had the heat on um, because they had solar. And so, you know, the homes that were completely reliant upon the grid, um, of course, they went, in some cases, weeks without power. And so, you know, I think that it's becoming more and more apparent to everyday Americans that, you know, this idea of redundancy and backup 
supplies of energy will be really important, particularly, you know, if we are going to be experiencing a higher frequency of extreme weather events, this can be part of our emergency preparedness. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have so much more to talk about with Leah and her new book, All Electric America. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. And just in case you've only now tuned in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Leah Parks. She's the co-author of a brand new book called All Electric America, A Climate Solution and the Hopeful Future. So, Leah, here's a bottom line kind of question for you. Do we currently have the technology to convert our entire energy grid to renewables or do we still need significant investment of public dollars in research and development? Well, right, we have the technologies to start right now. I mean, certainly what we have in the year 2050 will be different than what we have today. But we need to start implementing now, and then more research and development development will follow. And you can think of it like when we were using our computers in 1980, uh, 1985, we started using them. We didn't wait for that smartphone in our hands to start. So we have to start and, you know, continue using our typewriters until then. So we need to start now, and we have the technology to start right now. Well, that's good news. Um, and your book also makes the case that the cost of renewable energy will continue to decline over time. Um, and compared 
you compared investments in solar and wind infrastructure to investments that we made decades ago in dams. Um, help our listeners understand the cost trajectory for wind and solar. Yeah, if we look at our dams, we see that in places with dams, we have some of the least expensive, most stable price prices of energy in the country. And what happened was is that it, they were expensive to build, but with smart financing, we built them, and then it paid off over time. And once they were built, it cost the utilities less than a cent per kilowatt hour for the utility to produce them. Uh, that's what Dave always says, because he ran electric dance, Dave Freeman, my co-author. Mm-hmm. And he really, you know, um, believes in that. And I believe in it, too, because I live in a place powered by, <laughs> by a lot of hydroelectric uh, electricity. And so mm-hmm. in, just look at those states, and you can see what our future is for, for other renewables. Well, and I want to say to our listeners, there's a lot more detail on both of these questions in the book. And so I I encourage everybody to get out there and purchase a copy of All Electric America because um, Leah and David go into a lot more detail. um, And it's really interesting um, on those questions. Now, I've heard it said maybe over and over again, depending on which cable news channel you watch, um, that we should reject subsidies for wind and solar and let the market decide which fuel sources are most viable. Based on your research, Leah, how do wind and solar subsidies compare to those for gas and oil? Well, there's been a lot of complaint that's been made about government subsidies to the renewable sector. But we can't forget that fossil fuel indices receive subsidies that good estimates indicate are 25 times larger globally than those for renewable energy. And renewable energy is a new technology, and it's the technology of the future. And like we talked about, other countries are producing it, and other countries are way ahead, are not way ahead of us, but we don't want to be left behind. We want to stay uh, in the top. I mean, the U.S. usually wants to be number one, and we're not number one right now. You know, but yep. really, we want to. This is the future, the future technology, and we want that. There's so much entrepreneurship and job growth that can come from it, and uh, so we need. So my point was, we need subsidy, subsidies because this is what we do with future technologies. We give subsidies to it so that we can. Um, harness that and be part of it. And soon, the prices are falling so much, we are not going to need subsidies very longer. Mm-hmm. In some cases, we don't already. Yep. Well, and, and, you know, we've had Jigger Shaw on, and he's talked about how, you know, there are a lot of entrepreneurs in the renewable energy space that are like, well, even if we don't get the subsidies, we're going to end up being the, the market's choice. Um, and so I think that's something that people need to know. There needs to be a counter to that argument that subsidies are not a good investment. Um, your book explains the technology and advantages to electrifying our transportation system. And I'd love for you to spend some time explaining this to our listeners. Right. The, the EV for the general citizen is very exciting. A new 200-range cost-competitive car is about to come out soon, the Chevy Bolt. They're coming in about 30000 $30,000, but you can fill, they're going, these cars are going to be cheaper. The battery prices have come down so much that analysts um, have, have said that they've come down to a point where they're comparable in price. And you can fill your car for about a dollar per gallon equivalent, and they're going to require less maintenance. If you have solar panels on your roof, you're going to charge your car for even less money. So this is really exciting because you can get around 
and you can also do most of your plugging in and your charging at home. A new study from MIT came out saying 87%, I believe, uh, yeah, I think it's 87% of the cars um, driven could be from electric cars today because of how we use our cars. We use them within the city. And eventually, charging stations will, more and more charging stations will be built for longer distance, and longer distance EVs will come out. So we can also have cars and our buses um, run on, on um, uh, batteries as well, and they can just go around the city. You can actually do cordless charging now, which is, I mean, this technology is moving so fast. It's, it's just, it's at breakneck speed, and to keep up with it is amazing. So buses go in the same place all the time, and you can have these cordless charging spots near the bus stop so that char- they can just charge all day. I mean, it's really exciting. It really is exciting. And, you know, my, my husband drives a Chevy Volt, and, you know, he's had it for a couple of years now, and we have just been amazed at how low maintenance it is. I mean, there's just not as many parts in that engine, and there's just less that goes wrong with it. We can't believe how well it's running um, and, and how low the maintenance bills have been practically nothing. And that's something that a lot of people don't realize until you get behind the wheel of one of them and drive it for a while and you compare that to what you were spending on an internal combustion engine. Of course, you know, the Chevy Volt has a gas engine as well, but, you know, it, it's it's crazy how these electric engines are so almost maintenance-free. And Toyota has just announced a new hydrogen fuel cell car. And according to the commercials, the purchase price will include three years of fuel. I'd love for you to talk to us about the promise of hydrogen fuel and some of the challenges in bringing it to market, including the infrastructure that's needed. Right. I mean, hydrogen is very exciting. Uh, There's a lot of uh, possibility for, for hydrogen. And we can actually produce hydrogen with renewable energy electrolytically and split um, um, uh, water to make hydrogen. But, but right now it's, it is, there isn't, a, it's kind of, there's always this chicken and egg discussion about the infrastructure and producing hydrogen. And there are researchers looking for um, better ways, chemical reactions maybe with the sun, triggered by the sun to split water instead. And, and hydrogen can also be used for storage and is being used for storage also in the electric, in the electric grid. And it's th- thought that we could actually produce hydrogen from excess renewable energy. So there's a lot of the hydrogen economy, people have talked about it and have been very excited. And Toyota is really doing great work with their hydrogen cars. And really what the future technology will be is not really fully for me to say. You know, it's, it's one of those things that as, as we invest in this more and as we commit to this more, which technologies will be the winners um, will evolve and we'll, we'll design and develop new and more exciting things and we'll see different configurations. You know, will we use hydrogen for our cars? Will we will use them for our ships or our airplanes or will our airplanes have some sort of, I mean, airplanes could use hydrogen also. That's, that's one thought that will happen. Um, but, you know, then there's folks working on, there's a, there's solar flight going on right now and, and somebody in NASA who, people in NASA who are working on electric airplanes. So will it be some kind of combination? I mean, yeah, it's, it's really, it's really neat. 
It is. And the good news is we're working on technologies where there's an infinite supply of the fuel. You know, the sun, the wind, hydrogen's the most plentiful element, you know, that we have, uh, whereas fossil fuels, by definition, are finite. Um, So I think this is... If even if you know folks are iffy on climate change, I mean that's the argument right there. I mean we need to start transitioning away from resources that we know are finite; they will not last forever. By definition, we call them fossil fuels for a reason. And speaking of fossil fuels, you know the oil and gas companies have got a full court press of TV commercials going on right now, and many of them focus on natural gas as the quote unquote clean energy, and it's produced right here in America, so it's all about energy independence. But your book describes natural gas as, and I quote, "the root to climate hell." <laughs> Help us understand your rationale, Leah. Right. Natural gas is too little too late. It produces carbon dioxide. It's half of half of that of coal, but it still produces a lot of carbon dioxide, and it leaks methane. So particular concerning is that it, it, it that the natural gas leaks methane, and it's one of the most potent greenhouse gases. So if we consider the total natural gas used, we actually may produce more greenhouse gases overall than from coal, and about as much CO2. We, we use more natural gas than coal because we use it for heating and other, other uses as well, more than just electricity generation. And latest scientific studies have shown that the leakage rates are between one and a, are somewhere around 1.5% um, to 10 to 17%. And leaked methane is 120 times more damaging when it's first leaked and 84 times uh, more damaging than uh, carbon dioxide over 20 years. So when we add methane to the significant carbon emissions from natural gas, it becomes clear that natural gas is as bad or worse than coal. And we just don't have the time, even, even if it didn't leak at leak, we need to get to zero emissions by the year 2050 if we're going to clean, uh, reach our Paris Climate Agreement. So we need to not be building any more infrastructure that produces carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. And you know, the oil companies, even the Obama administration have talked about an all-of-the-above philosophy on energy. Why is that a counterproductive stance? Well, we have something called a greenhouse gas budget, and carbon dioxide and methane stay in the air a long time, and we accumulate them more and more every day, adding to our debt. So we will have to stay within this budget if we are to achieve the U.S. agreed-upon climate goals we reached in the United Nations Conference in Paris of staying below a two degrees, uh, temp- uh, two degrees temperature rise. So the family climate doctor tells us that above two degrees Celsius, we risk droughts, wars, instability, and runaway global warming. So to not um, uh, exceed this greenhouse gas budget, we have to stay, we have to reach near zero by the year 2050, because every year we could keep putting out more and more greenhouse gases. We keep adding to that debt. So we should think of zero emissions as achieving a greenhouse gas balanced budget in some sense. And we'll need to take, yeah. So that's that's why all of the above doesn't work. Yeah, that's a really 
powerful analogy. I really like that. We're, we're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have more with Leah and her new book, All, Ameri- All Electric America. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. You know, I can't emphasize this enough. This new book that we're discussing that Leah Parks has co-written with David Freeman called All Electric America, um, it's very accessible for anyone who is interested in the future of our energy supply, renewable energy. Um, Though there is a lot of solid research in the book, it's written in such a way that it is very accessible to the everyday American. And so I encourage you to get out there. You can find it um, easily just by Googling All Electric America. Leah, your book has an entire chapter devoted to energy efficiency, and I think it's critical to spend some time talking about this. A lot of people confuse conservation and efficiency, and I'd like for you to talk about how they differ. And is it true that energy efficiency projects are often too costly for the average consumer? Right. Making our homes more energy efficient and buying high-efficiency cars and appliances in no way involves doing without or freezing in the dark, as critics in the past have described. Investment in efficiency actually is about saving money as well as energy. Conservation is the equivalent of turning down your thermostat in the winter and freezing or, you know, being a bit cold uh, or turning your lights off to read in low light so that you don't, you, you know, so that you can save energy there, too. And, and this is not at all. Efficiency is looking at improving technology so we can do the same thing with less energy and for less money. 
And so we have a lot of highly efficient uh, systems. We have LED light bulbs, are installing heat pump systems, uh, buying electric cars, like I said. And um, and what what you see is that if you make this investment, sometimes it does cost a little bit more money, but there's an opportunity for savings of five to fifty percent of your current cost. And and that uh, obviously that doesn't even factor in the benefit of the environmental benefits as well. But looking at it, you can you you save money that way. Now, um, and and sometimes it'll take a year or five years to make up the cost, and then you start paying less money after that. But financing, I have to say, is really important. Part of designing, moving, if we want to have this goal of getting to um, a renewable energy future, financing would be really very helpful and is very is really important because sometimes these upfront costs are expensive. So if you finance it, ideally the best financing is that you buy something and you pay the same amount of money you'd pay each month anyway for the product, and then after that your price becomes less. But we really mm-hmm. need our legislators to create um, green banks to help with financing, for instance. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and I really liked the chapter that in the book about the 21st century utility company and what that's going to look like and some of the financing that they might consider um, so that they can help with some of these projects as well. Talk to us about some of the ways that utility companies will need to adapt as the electricity grid becomes more decentralized. Right. The electricity... Um, System and will have to change from being a centrally generated generated infrastructure to distributed model. Model will they'll they'll balance and monitor the electricity coming from your homes and from coming throughout the grid. And they will have to change the way that they actually make money as well, not just based on how many uh, kilowatts of energy they sell. But it's going to have to be based on whether the utility and um, whether it's going to be have to be more about services and value-oriented utilities. New York is actually working on doing this right now. But you can also some of, an example of a service-oriented utility is Green Mountain Power of Vermont. They're doing really neat stuff where they're actually they have green doctors that come and do house calls to look at your whole home, and they'll they'll help do complete energy upgrades, LEDs. I think they do. Um, um, some insulation as well. They'll give you heat pumps, solar panels, even sto- Tesla storage, um, home storage battery system. And then they finance it, and then you save money. So this is kind of, uh, and, and you pay, I believe, through your um, electricity bill that way. And so this is the, the wave of the future. Our utilities could really help in this transformation. They could They could go from being a group that folks are an organization folks are pretty annoyed with to um, to a really great help they can be saviors even yeah I don't know about saviors but they can really they can be really an important partner absolutely facilitators of the future you know I mean they really yeah. could um, you know your book goes into a good amount of detail about what an all-electric energy policy act would look like. And I'd really like for you to spend some time on this one because this is where the rubber meets the road. A lot of our listeners, you know, they're politically active to some extent, but they're not sure what to expect of their local, state, and federal public policymakers when it comes to an energy policy. So take some time and share, share this with our listeners. Sure. The the Act puts forth a combination of requirements and incentives to achieve both a low-cost energy supply and 
to help us avoid climate catastrophe um, and also helps the U.S. Uh, keep in the clean tech race so, uh, and, and achieve our Paris agreements as well. And what, what we look at in kind of a brief outline is we, we look to stop the building of all new fossil fuel electric power plants and require emissions to be reduced 3% per year for the next 35 years. The amount required to enable the U.S. Um, it will enable the U.S. and, and is for all of the energy industries for, to create a nearly greenhouse gas-free energy supply by 2050. So we're looking at our transportation industry as well, our heating and cooling industry as well, as well as, um, as, well as in our industry. So it's, all of, it's not just for generation is my point. We're looking at throughout the board, anywhere we produce fossil fuels. And we propose a national, we need national portfolio standard, not just state by state, but national. And it will require that every electric utility, both publicly and privately owned, to meet this, where we're about 30% on average, 30% greenhouse gas free by the year 2025, 60 by 2030, and 100% by 2050. We can actually maybe do better than that as far as doing a bigger push earlier, and there are many proponents saying we need to do that actually faster faster than that. But that's kind of on average for us to get there by 2050. And then we also propose creating a federal green bank, which provides loan guarantees for the financing of railroad electrification for construction of renewable electricity power plants uh, and other infrastructure we need um, and long-term contracts with electric electric distribution utilities that are ratepayer-funded as well. Uh, This this is really, the, the financing is a, is a really important part of how we, of how this will, will happen. And you can also institute tax credits, ta- basically incentives and disincentives. Use ta- taxes as, a, as either one way or the other. Mm-hmm. For, and this can be for consumer products and it can also be for, for industry as well. So mm-hmm. that's, that's and, and the idea is we, we really looked at Laws as being important as well as taxes. It's the combination. I mean, we're a civilized society that has the rule of law, and in the past we passed laws like um, to ban DDT or, um, you know, uh, other policies. So it's, it's the combination of, of both to get, the, get us there. Absolutely. And, you know, let's speak directly to our listeners. In the final moments that we have left in the show, give our listeners some concrete action that they can take in the short term to help bring about an all-electric America. Right. The individual consumer can do a lot to help make this happen. We're, we are a very important part of the, the solution. Our homes and buildings use almost 50% of our energy for heating and electricity, and transportation is almost 30% of our energy. So what we do, what we do at home, if we put solar panels, panels on a roof, if we buy electric vehicles, will have a huge impact. And you, can, you saw it in California. California... Uh, Folks, residents in California put solar panels on the roof. They also had laws passed in California for very strong renewable portfolio standards, now at 50%. But the individual putting solar panels on their roof made legislators listen. It made the utilities listen and say, we need this, because the utilities had to physically deal with all of that solar and variable energy on the roof. 
Absolutely. And, and so we can do that. And if we get electric vehicles, it'll send loud and clear, we're done with foreign oil. Yep. <laughs> we don't exactly. want all of the messes abroad. We want energy security. That's yeah. right. The power of the purse. Leah, really I wish is. we had another hour to spend with you. It's been absolutely great having you on the show and I encourage our listeners to get your book All Electric America it's inspiring it outlines a hopeful future um, which is in stark contrast to some of the folks that are talking about this and I really appreciate it thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in we're going to be here same time same place next week with more Go Green Radio until then have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.